In one sense, Armageddon is nothing more than the laughter of God. And he will put his son there on the temple mount where he will rule and reign from his holy mountain for 1,000 years. This is Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We began looking yesterday at the beginning of the end for the Antichrist, the false prophet, and the devil himself. We're in Revelation chapter 19, verses 17 to 21, and as we pick up, Dr. Brogy gives some insight into the location where the final battle of the tribulation, the Battle of Armageddon, takes place. Now, here's a picture of Armageddon. Har is the Hebrew word for mountain or hill, and it relates to what we call the Mount of Megiddo. Some of you have been here with me. It's an elevated um, hill of sorts, a real small mountain, I suppose you could say, and it overlooks what we typically refer to as the Valley of Jezreel. It's a very important valley that it overlooks because some of Israel's greatest battles, some of history's greatest battles happened right here. If you remember, according to the book of Judges, chapter 4, Barak, as he heard the uh, word of prophecy from Deborah, he fought Sisera here near the waters of Megiddo, the Bible says. It was here in the book of Judges that Gideon, that great man of God, took his place against the Midianite forces. It was here at Megiddo that King Josiah, that godly king in Israel's history, was conquered by Pharaoh Necho, and all of Israel wept. It's a renowned Old Testament battlefield in a region that spans some 200 miles. Titus, the Roman general, fought here, as did Pompey and Richard the Lionhearted. And and Napoleon called this very great valley the world's greatest natural battlefield. So God is allowing these three demonic spirits as a judgment to deceive the kings of the world. It reminds me of what God allowed back in 1 Kings chapter 22. Let me read to you what Micaiah said to that wicked, evil king called Ahab. Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. The Lord said, who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said this while another said that. Then a spirit came forward, a demonic spirit, and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. The Lord said to him, how? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all the prophets. Then he said, you are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets, and the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. Now, King Ahab, if you remember, found it incredibly difficult to believe how one prophet could be right and 400 could be wrong. And I suppose it's not all that different today, is it? 
And Micaiah explained that the message of the 400 prophets was a result of a fallen angel of a deceitful spirit who was leading the king in the wrong direction. But since Ahab wanted to be deceived by his rebellious spirit, God allowed him to be deceived. Indeed, the devil is God's devil. He has no authority but that authority which God gives him. And that's precisely, go back to Revelation 19, that's precisely what is happening here in the 19th chapter, when God allows the kings of the whole world to be deceived because they have rejected the truth. They're like putty in the hand of Satan. These lost rebels have now come once again like an act at the Tower of Babel to rebel against God Almighty. Now, here's a picture of the Valley of Jezreel. You know, the Old Testament was also translated into Greek for many Jews who lost their ability. And in Greek, it's not Jezreel, but Esdraelom. And so we also call this the Valley of Esdraelon. So don't get confused. The Valley of Jezreel and the Valley of Esdraelon, it's the same place. Now, when you look at this particular valley, it's 14 miles wide and it's about 20 miles long. You say, how could the armies of the world be represented in this place because this is just the staging ground. As we studied back in Revelation 14, you might want to go back and listen to the message, up and down Israel over the course of 200 miles, all of these armies of the world. Now, sometimes Christians call this the Valley of Armageddon. There is no such valley. That's what we call Christianese, where we, we make up terms, so to speak. Technically, there's no such thing as the Battle of Armageddon, though there is a battle. It's really better described as a command. But someday, probably not in the too near distant future, the spirit of demons will entice the kings and leaders of the world to come to this particular place, and they will be convinced that they can somehow wage war against God's Christ. And by the way, according to the prophet Zechariah, this is a battle not just against Israel, it is against God's Messiah, which brings me to the next point. Satan gathers his forces, but then Satan fights God's Messiah. He fights God's Messiah. We read now in verse 19, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the throne and against his army. So here's the beast, the Antichrist, and he is the commander-in-chief, so to speak, for all of the armies of the world. And at this point, they want to make war against Jesus, against Yeshua. Their mission is to put an end to the saints of God, to the Israel of God, and to the Christ of God. They hate God. They want to make war against Him. You say, how could they be so stupid to think they can pull this off? Because they're deceived. God has sent a deluding influence that they might believe what is false. And it's no more fantastic than the fact that they murdered God when he literally physically came to the earth. And so we're told they are here to make war against God's Messiah. In between verses 19 and 20, the details are not here, but they are filled out in the prophet Zechariah. And we studied, if you remember, back in verse 15, if you were here last time, that when Jesus comes back, he's pictured as a sharp sword protruding from his mouth. And we ask, is that a literal sword 
or is that symbolic? And again, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. God often describes the Word of God with a sword. And so Paul tells us that one of our offensive pieces of weaponry as Christians is that we're to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But this same Word that God uses to save people, on this day, He's going to use to slaughter people. The armies of the world are going to be obliterated. They're not going to get some nuke rocket up in the sky to take Jesus down and off of his horse. He is going to speak, and all of these armies are going to be wiped out. God predicts this in Psalm 2. David wrote, the kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his Messiah, his anointed. And then the Bible records God's response. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. In one sense, Armageddon is nothing more than the laughter of God. And he will put his son there in the temple mount where he will rule and reign from his holy mountain for 1,000 years. But there's a third truth that I want us to see. Not only are Satan's forces doomed in Armageddon, not only are they drawn to Armageddon by these deceiving spirits, I want you to notice how Satan's forces are destroyed by Armageddon. The very event that man uses hoping to destroy God's Messiah will end up bringing their own destruction. First notice how Satan's malicious pair are judged. I want you to see how his malicious pair are judged. We're told now in verse 20, and the beast, the Antichrist, was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who'd received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. So Christ rides in the sky, we behind him, and by his word, the beast, the antichrist, and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire. Put out on the margin next to this verse, 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 8. We've already studied that this great victory takes place back in verse 15 from the sharp sword that protrudes from Christ's mouth. And again, it's a symbol for the Word of God. Paul tells us, then that lawless one, one of the titles for the Antichrist, that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay, how? With the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Put out in the margin next to this verse, Isaiah 11 and verse 4. There the prophet Isaiah informs us, with the breath of his lips, that is, with his word, he, God, will slay the wicked. So Paul and John and Isaiah all concur it's going to happen by the power of Christ's word. However, John tells us something that we learn nowhere else, that this dynamic duo are going to be destroyed on this day in the lake of fire. The beast and the false prophet for their great evil are thrown into the fire that burns with brimstone. Now, we'll see the rest of the lost of all time will not be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone until the end of the thousand years are over. But this is a reverse rapture of sorts. 
when the rapture happens for God's people, and it could happen today, those who know the Lord Jesus will be caught up in a split second, in the twinkling of an eye. This mortal will put on immortality. This perishable will put on imperishable and will be changed. And we will receive a new body suited to walk in streets of gold. And this reverse rapture, these two men are caught up and they are given new bodies, just like Jesus said, all unbelievers would likewise receive a new body in John chapter 5, verse 29, and they will receive a body that is suited not for streets of gold, but for the lake of fire, where they will suffer day and night forever and ever without their bodies ever being consumed. Now, I hope you realize that today when an unbeliever dies, and we'll study this in the 20th chapter, I know I'm getting a little ahead of myself, he doesn't go to hell, so to speak, to the lake of fire. He goes to Hades. Now, it's an awful place. Jesus described it in Luke 16. It's a place where there's forever thirst. It's a place where men are in constant agony. Anyone who goes there, it's a horrible place. But it's not the final resting place. We will learn in the 20th chapter that Hades and everyone in it is then cast into the lake of fire. But the very first two people to be there is not even Satan. Satan's not in hell today with a pitchfork running around and poking people. He's never been there, not yet. He's going there at the end, as we will see, of the thousand-year reign of the Messiah. But these two, these two wonder-working, miracle-performing, deceiving men are going to be the first recipients in the lake of fire. That's important. That's not by accident. And God is going to do this for a particular reason. Together, these two men were great deceivers. They deceived millions, literally billions of people across the planet. These two pretenders are going to be the first recipients, and I think God is sending a message that we'll study in the 20th chapter, that while hell is awful for anyone who goes there, it's not the same for everyone who goes there. That while heaven is wonderful for everyone who goes there, it's not the same for everyone who goes there. There are degrees of rewards, and as we're going to study, there are degrees of punishment. And by the way, this is the first time the lake of fire is introduced to us in the Bible. The writers of the New Testament and Jesus describe it, but John is the first one to title it the lake of fire, and it burns with brimstone. That describes its intense heat and its wicked putrid odor. Now, either Jesus and John and the rest of the writers of Scripture are sheer liars or they are telling the truth. And I know today people don't want to talk about hell, but you cannot preach the whole counsel of Scripture as every pastor is called to do and bury this truth. Satan's forces are destroyed by Armageddon. First, the malicious perish judge. Secondly, Satan's misled people, they are killed. The misled people of this world are killed. We read now in verse 21, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. The wicked who have died up to this point in human history, they are in Hades. 
And once again, these people that are killed, they are no doubt in Hades, but at the end of the thousand years, they will be put in the lake of fire that burns with brimstone. And with the image of these two evil men who have led the world in evil, it is a reminder, it's a caution to people who will read this book and who have read this book for some 2,000 years to get their lives right with God Almighty because in an instant, the armies of the world will be killed and the Bible says that the birds were filled with their flesh. Hundreds of millions of birds who blacken the sky will have more than they can actually eat. Now, what does this mean for us today? Let me suggest three applications as we close our time. Number one, I am reminded from this passage of Scripture, never to doubt the perfection of God's justice. Don't ever doubt the perfection of God's justice. We just read in verse 20, And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. Again, why isolate these two men? With greater wickedness comes greater penalty. And these two men did more to damn the souls of humans than anyone in all of recorded history. Yes, there are degrees of punishment in hell. And I will prove that to you when we come to the 20th chapter. The university professor who delights in running down the Bible and the morality of the Bible to contribute further to the demise of college students that fill their classrooms, those men and women will receive a greater judgment. The greedy person who flaunts his wealth before men and causes those around him to look with more covetous eyes, they will receive a greater judgment. The immoral man who flaunts his immorality, who invites others to participate with him, who creates a movie or an internet site or a song that is driven by sensuality, they will receive a greater judgment. The politician who legislates evil, who says that LGBTQ+, however many letters you want to put it after, is okay, when God says it is an utter perversion. These politicians who are legislating the murder of little babies, yes, they will receive a greater judgment. God will not treat every sinner alike. And this passage of Scripture reminds me of that. Second, I learn never to doubt the power of God's Word. I am reminded never to doubt the power of God's Word. Not only should I not doubt the perfection of His justice, I should never doubt the power of His Word. One word from Christ, and all the armies of the world are instantly defeated. I hope you understand something about the power of the spoken word by the living word. And I'm not talking about the Kenneth Copeland trash, the name it, claim it garbage of our day. Oh, be careful what you say. That could happen to you. Oh, I got a cold. Oh, maybe I have a cold. And all this nonsense. I am talking about the power of the living word as he is termed, as he speaks the word of God. This like 
Christ is a divine human book. It's written by men, but men who are moved along by the Holy Spirit. Christ is a divine human person. He's all God, all man. He's not half God, half man. He's not all God, no man. He's not all man, no God. He is the God-man, 100% God, 100% man. And when he speaks, it happens. In Mark 4, there on the Sea of Galilee, they were in a ferocious storm. And he spoke and he said, be quiet. And the sea became like glass. In Capernaum, a paralyzed man was lowered down through the roof of that home. And Jesus said, get up. And he immediately was healed. And there was strength to those paralyzed limbs. In Bethany, as he stood at the grave of his friend Lazarus, who had been dead for four days, he said, Lazarus, come out. And immediately he is brought back to life. That little girl, that precious little one who had died and the people had come to cry and to pay their last respects over the death of such a little one. And Jesus said, little girl, I say to you, get up. And she was immediately brought back to life. In Gadara, those two men who were indeed filled with some 2,000 demons, Jesus said, come out. And all those demons are destroyed in some 2,000 pigs that are driven into the sea. Every time Christ attended a funeral, he interrupted it. He disturbed what was happening because he is alive. But I want to tell you, on this day, he will bring death by his word with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. And all of the might of man and all of the forces of Satan will not be able to stop God's Messiah. In one world, these 200 million plus people are going to become bird food. And by the way, it is a reminder to me that as a believer in Jesus Christ, we have a book that is like a sharp sword. I am not here this morning sharing my opinion. I am here sharing the Word of God. And when we speak against homosexuality and adultery and fornication and transgenderism and legalizing pot and killing little children... We are speaking with the authority of God Almighty, and we should make no apology for it whatsoever. Third and finally, I'm reminded never to doubt the seriousness of God's judgment. The same inspired Word of God that so wondrously describes the grace and salvation of God is equally descriptive of the judgment of God for those who reject God's grace. The tendency of the liberals in our day is to emphasize the love of God to the exclusion of the wrath of God, and they preach another Jesus. But this passage on judgment is just as inspired as those passages that speak of God's love and God's grace. And someday Jesus is going to come back, and the kingdoms of our God are going to become the kingdoms of His Christ. I want to ask you this morning, have you made peace with God Listen to what the Apostle Paul said to the church at Colossus. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and Jesus, and through Him, through Jesus, to reconcile all things to Himself. Having made peace through the blood of His cross, through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, 
And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Listen, by nature, we are children of wrath. But you can sign a peace treaty this morning with the Prince of Peace. Look, if I didn't know that my name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life, I I wouldn't want this day to end without it getting settled. And if you're uncertain, I'll help you this morning. And when he returns, you won't have to worry whether you're being represented by these armies or if you're actually a soldier in this army, because if you're born again and Christ comes for you, you'll be riding back with him with all the armies from heaven. You won't be in these armies here on the earth. But if you're not saved, and this happens in our lifetime, you will literally physically either be in Israel for this battle, or you will be hurraying and giving high fives to those who are representing you. You say, how do I make my life right with Christ? One, you have to see your sin. If you don't call your drunkenness bad, you'll never get saved. If you don't call your adultery and your fornication and your homosexuality and your greed and your covetousness sin, you'll never get saved. You've got to call sin, sin. You've got to see your sin for what it is. You've got to see God's Messiah. His name is Yeshua, Jesus. And you must come in faith and ask Him to be your Lord. Have you ever done that? You should. And I invite you to do it right now. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Maybe you are unsure that heaven is really your home. Listen, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. You don't earn gifts. Someone else does the payment. And Christ, with His own precious blood on a cross, purchased your salvation. He did for you what will take you an eternity in hell to do. And if you will come to him today on the basis of his death and resurrection and say, Lord Jesus, save me and change me, he'll do that right now for all of eternity. Would you do that? Would you say, Lord Jesus, save me? Now, Father, I realize that many within the sound of my voice have crossed that line. But we are living in the apathy and the lethargy of these last days. Our minds and hearts are consumed and distracted by worldly things. And we can't even remember the last time we tried to share Jesus with someone. Forgive us for our disobedience. Replace lukewarmness with a hot passion to live for Christ, to follow Him fully, to warn men and women and boys and girls of the wrath that is going to come. Help us in this new week. Let it be the first day for the rest of our lives. May you allow in your mercy this church to be a vibrant witness. May we not be satisfied with the fact that we're here to be fed. But may we repent of our arrogance and our pride and be passionate about lost people all around us. 
Thank you, Lord Jesus. You said you've come to seek and to save that which is lost. And you've commissioned us and given us the privilege to do the same. Help us to do it. We ask it in your holy name. Amen. To listen again to today's message, The Collapse at Armageddon, use the Search the Scriptures app for mobile devices or navigate your computer to searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV56. Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you'd like to help continue this teaching, visit us online at searchthescriptures.org or call 877-787-7478. Thank you. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll move into chapter 20 of Revelation and study the doom of the devil. Join us then as we search the scriptures. <laughs>